Welcome back to the Renaissance uh, episode 39. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the rise of the Medici family. How are you today, Bubble Boy? <laughs> I am fine. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Good. Loving, loving the Medici I am. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's a pretty cool uh, story. Makes me want to go back. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah, me too. I'm always going, oh, that, what's that? We missed that. Did we look oh, at that? Yeah. Did we go there? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anywho. Next time. Um, at the end of the last episode, we were talking a little bit about the, sh- the political structure of Florence in the late Middle Ages. We talked about how they were run by a council, the Signoria. The um, chief of the Signoria was the Gonfalonieri. Uh, they were quasi-elected. Every two months, they'd pull names at random out of a bag, right. uh, well, a series of bags. Um, you had to be a member of a guild to be in the bag. If your name got pulled out, you had to serve for two months. Yeah. That's how it worked. We talked about how there were certain professions that formed guilds. Uh, you had to basically have a permanent workshop to yeah. be able to form a guild profession that had a workshop we talked about how the secrets were passed on you did this whole thing about how the sith had a guild and they passed on the (laughs) knowledge of the dark side from the master to the apprentice um well i talked about secret handshakes etc etc now um in times of trouble Mm -hmm. the signoria would toil the bell in the campanelle the bell tower right of their their palace the palazzo della signoria which is uh, now known as the Palazzo Vecchio, the old palace, um, which we stood out the front of. It's right next to the Uffizi Gallery. I think mm-hmm. you, you came to us to the Uffizi, I, I think. Yep. Yeah. You, did, did, I, you skipped out on stuff at certain uh, places. The Louvre, I don't think the Louvre was what I missed. Right. Yeah. But you came to everything in Florence, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, so um, the Uffizi uh, uh, is is sort of that that street that the Uffizi is on is right next to the Palazzo Vecchio, the old Palazzo de, della Signoria. Uh, you can check it out online. It looks like a looks like an old castle. It's got mm-hmm. like castley type things at the top. Um, what do you what would you call that? Uh, like, turrets, towers. Whoa. Yeah, I'm drawing I'm drawing a picture with my finger. I don't know if you can see this, but. Um, <laughs> You know, a chess piece, the castle. Yeah, the Rook, castle. Yeah. It's got those little yeah. uh, turret things at the top. Turret yeah, things, it's yeah. Got those Let's go with turret. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, this bell, do you know what the bell was called? Ring my bell. No. Tell me the great bell. The great bell of the uh, Palazzo della Signoria was known as the vaca. Is that cow or head? Cow. Cow. Head. Yeah, you go up to a prostitute in Florence and say, how much for some vodka? She's going to say. She's going to think you're trying to order a steak, a piece of steak. Or you want to screw a cow. I had. So I had. There's a a famous, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a famous uh, kind of uh, piece of steak that you can get in Florence. Um, It's just huge. It's like. Two and a half inches yeah, thick. Yeah, William and I split one. Oh, did you? Well, I had one by myself. I think oh, that's because I saw you guys split mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah, we, we, Chrissy and I got to the restaurant late. Well, mm, yeah, <laughs> no, because I ordered the whole thing myself, right. and I ordered a big one. I thought, like, you know. I can handle that. Florence, I'm going to fucking do it. <laughs> um, number one, I couldn't eat the whole thing. no. Made myself sick trying to eat. Number two, uh, it, it cost $150 uh, to, for Whoa. this steak. <laughs> wow. I was like, uh, they uh, they said, like, it's uh, 50 euro. And I was like, ah, oh, 50 bucks, it's, yeah. you know, for a big steak. That's not too bad. Forgot that it was in uh, euro. Right. Uh, cost me $150 for this steak I couldn't eat. So dumb. Wow. Really dumb. Next time, just order ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. It's cheaper, and you feel lighter, not heavy yeah, at the right. end. So, <laughs> and a little sleepy. Anyway, 
Um, so yes, the, the 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 bell of the Palazzo della Signoria was called the uh, the vaca, the cow, because it made a deep mooing sound. Oh, apparently, gotcha. they ring the bell and go. <laughs> and so turned on. When you heard that, if you were a male citizen over the age of fourteen, you were expected to gather in your respective ward. And then you would march behind the banner of your ward right. to the Piazza della Signoria to form what they called a parlamento. Mm. And then the parlamento, a parliament, would uh, be asked to approve the establishment of an emergency committee called a balia, right. uh, which was basically, as I understand, it's like the dictatorship in Rome. Mm-hmm. It was like an emergency committee that had emergency powers to deal with the immediate crisis, do whatever ah, they had to do. Right. Except unlike Rome, it wasn't one guy. It was a, a relatively small committee. That's smart. That uh, could deal with the crisis and then it would be disbanded. So um, that was another interesting component of their political system, which we're going to see come into play as we continue to tell the story of Florence, because they were called by and against the Medici's uh, various oh, stages. These uh, balias <laughs> were called to support or depose right. Medici's at, yeah. at various stages. Are we ready to talk about Siena? Um, no, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the political system. I, okay. guess. I, I mentioned, I think, in the last episode that the the nobility of Florence, the Grandi, weren't allowed to form part of the Signoria, right. according to the constitution of Florence. The other people I said who were excluded were the uh, the ordinary workers. They were called the Minuto Popolo, Aww. or the Popolo Minuto. I've seen it written both ways. The right. um, The small people. <laughs> Um, Don't you dare. Now you have, yeah, now you would have been. <laughs> king. I would have been king of the small people. <laughs> <laughs> the Oompa Loompas is actually what they were known as, yeah. That's my, that's my um, gang name, yeah. Now, interestingly, um, it wasn't just a, 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 a mean term to call them, the no. little people. Right. Um, they were, in fact, little because... They were born prematurely and had to live in bubbles. That was some of it. But right. other reason <laughs> is they didn't they didn't get good food, didn't yeah. get good nutrients. So they were probably I, literally yeah. little people. Right. Underdeveloped, um, skinny, were, scrawny. Yeah. 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 Um, now, as I've said several times, the whole system, though, was pretty corrupt. The uh, process of the election to the Signoria was controlled usually by a few of the richest merchant families. They made sure that only the names of their reliable supporters found their way into the leather bags. Not like everyone got to check the contents of the leather bags before the names were pulled out. Are you sure, (laughs) uh, Jimmy, that uh, you've got everyone's names in those Those bags are looking a little bit light, Jimmy? Yeah, your name's in there. Don't. Don't you fucking dare question me. I These bags have been in a church. I mean, who's going to fuck with things in a church? Really? I mean, you know, it's not like Catholic priests are giving blowjobs. Well, that's okay. That's a bad example. Um, let me think of another one. Yeah, Look, yeah. what happens inside of a church stays right. inside of it. You know, you I don't want to know. No. Okay, so listen, I don't know. Trust, you just, trust like, God. I, Trust God. Can't have all of you come and check the bags. You're just going to, yeah, trust God. Yeah. Everyone's names are in the bag. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so that it was corrupted that way. And, of course, if any anyone managed to get their name into the bag who mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to be in the bag and it was pulled out, um, the, the, the rich families would just manage to uh, call for a parlamento, uh, create right. a balia, and then they would uh, you know, kick everyone off of the seigneurie and basically have another election. That's how you do so it. So they had ways of manipulating and getting away because democracy always gets corrupted. When you have, when you have um, a differential in the wealth of the people, the mm-hmm. rich and the powerful are always going to be looking for ways to, to manipulate the democracy for their own advantage. And that 
ladies and gentlemen, is the topic of my new book, The Psychopath Economy. Nice. Coming to good bookstores near you. Probably not. Uh, probably. <laughs> but online. You just have to self- Most online, definitely online. You, know, the, yeah. you can read the first couple of chapters of it if you haven't already. Oh, okay. Just Google The Psychopath Economy and um, you can read the first couple of chapters for free. Nice. But they'll be, uh, uh, I just finished the last edit of that yesterday, so that'll be coming out hopefully sometime in the next couple of months. Check, keep an eye out for that. But that's basically what it's about. Psychopaths yeah. running the economy. Not giving shit. Um, which would have been the same, would have been true in Florence, as true in Florence then as it is now. Yeah. Let me know when you get to a stopping point. Not that I'm trying to rush you, because I don't do that. Um, okay, I will. So, um, well, that's a stopping point. Yeah. Okay. I was going to start talking about Guccio de Medici. Um, but if you want to jump in and tell me a story. Yeah, well, I'd love to tell you a story. You, or, or a couple of minutes ago, you were mentioning that the nobles, the aristocracy, was not allowed to run for government. Do you remember the story why? Um, I kind uh, of, no, tell me, tell me the story why. Okay, so as we, and, and, I'll, and I'll keep this kind of short, but as we were leaving Florence, I, we were on the bus, and I noticed that there was a lot of... Um, for lack of a better word, towers. Picture a two- or three-story, pretty narrow tower just going straight up. It's got one door, and at the top you could see the turrets where people could stand. And they were like, I, we passed by one, two, three, four, five, and I'm like, why are these all pretty much standalone towers here? It's not like they were part of a castle that, that went down. So I did a little research when we got to our next stop, which I I think was Athens I honestly or Rome. I can't honestly remember. But the point is... Um, Back before this time period, back in the, the 11 and 1200s, early 1200s, the law of the land in places like Florence was that if you were an aristocrat, if you were noble, you had the legal right to feud with other nobles in the streets. If you were anybody else, if you were a merchant or you were a businessman, you were a common or whatever, you weren't allowed. If you got into a fight, you'd go to jail for disturbing the peace or murder or whatever. But the nobles could fight each other. And it, it was getting pretty much out of hand. So what the nobles would do is they would build these standalone towers and they'd pay some some toughs to stay in, to stay in them. So if you're walking along the street and you meet up with, you know, you're the Montagues and you pass by the Capulets or whatever, and y'all start fighting each other, and if you're losing the fight, you could run to one of your towers, you've got some mates there, they'll bring you in, they'll lock the door, and what would happen is that your your friends would go to the top, and they would throw things at the opposing side as they're walking by, you know, they, don't, they have no idea what's coming, so they would hurl something down, sometimes it was weapons, it wasn't just tomatoes or whatever, and this kept going on, and so... As you can imagine, innocent civilians who had nothing to do with this were getting hurt. And the government over, and this this is going to take decades, but the government over time pretty much says, okay, this is getting ridiculous. For one, they um, say that the aristocrats can't be in the government anymore because they would abuse that system. Um, Two, they eventually kicked the nobles out of the major cities, and the nobles were semi-okay with that anyway because they couldn't take part in power, so they would just go to their country estates. Now, the rich merchants eventually take on the name aristocrats or nobles, even though they're not really that by blood like the original ones were, but they kind of take over that position. But these people are kicked out, and so even... so it gets to the point where even the new nobles are so arrogant and they're trying to, to corrupt the system that even they are not allowed to run for government. So like you were saying a minute ago, when you have disparity of wealth, the, the wealthy only care about themselves. They try to bend or break the rules to suit themselves. But Florence had the wherewithal to go, look, okay, you fuckers, you're messing everything up. You are no longer allowed to be a part of the government. And, and don't get me wrong, this took like 100 years, but they eventually banned all these people from participating. And so they could be noble and they could be rich and they could lord it over everybody, but what they could not do was participate in running the city. Yeah, well said. And and like um, you know, ancient Rome and like Paris today, there was an ongoing series of people's revolutions happening in Florence. Every now and again, the people would yeah. rise up and they'd get supported by sort of the middle class, the up-and-coming merchants that had a little right. bit of wealth, the, the um, bourgeoisie that were uh, – uh, what's, what's the name? The 
fucking the this little uh, the little bourgeoisie. I can't remember the name for it. The, hmm. the fucking the proletariat. Petite, oh, petite, no, petite? the petite, petite bourgeoisie. Right. Yeah, the people that that were sort of up and comers, they would obviously support them um, because they wanted to kick out the 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 guys who were running things, so they could become the new aristocracy, you'd right. say. And this this went on and on. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, uh, they would just so the, the the nobility would cause fucking trouble, then run to their castle and go, ha ha, can't get me. <laughs> exactly. And people eventually just got sick of that. Exactly. Um, so in twelve ninety nine, uh, again, the Medici have been in Florence for nearly a hundred years before the second member of the family would become a gonfalonieri, Guccio de Medici. Now. When he died, he had the distinction of being buried in a 4th century sarcophagus that was placed outside the baptistery. Wow. So he must have done something prominent. He, they, uh, we don't really know what he did right. to deserve that, but he did Still. something good. Yeah. That, that must have been a bit of an honour. <laughs> they were like, let's open that 4th century sarcophagus, <laughs> tip out poor fucker who's in there. Um, put this guy in. Yeah. Give it a bit of a bit of a rinse, right. bit of borax in there, bit of a scrub. It'll be fine. Right. Smelly, yes, but he won't care. He's dead. Yeah. We'll throw him in. Then, uh, fourteen, fifteen years later, another Medici, another Avarado, was right. elected gonfalonieri. Yeah, but then, then the family seemed to be up and coming. Uh, but then they seemed to go backwards. For a while, and in fact, one of this Avarado's grandsons, Felino de Conte de Medici, actually wrote a short book of memoirs for his children where he talked about the decline of the family. Mm. He said, although the family still owns several small houses in Florence, as well as two palazzi, an inn, and the half of a palazzo with houses around it in Cafagiolo in the Mugello, right. uh, and they were still quite well off. They were not nearly as rich as they had once been. Although their social position was still considerable, he said it ought to have been higher. Gone were the days when people would say, you are like one of the Medici, and every man feared them, he wow. wrote. Wow. So they had obviously been quite powerful in that period from like 1297 to 1314. Mm -hmm. But then for some reason, they uh, went backwards and um, had to build up their power again. Well, well, the impression that I got, and tell me what you think of this, but I think during that time when they got this this uh, position to to run the um, Signoria, I think they were pretty conservative, pretty safe. They didn't rock any, they didn't rock the boat. They focused on, you know, stability so people could make money. And I think they were, I think they gained some respect um, and uh, from that uh, because they weren't doing anything different or radical or whatever. And I think they were starting to become seen as, hey, you know what? Yeah, they might be up and coming, but there are kind of people because they're about stability and money. And I think maybe after that, something might have changed. But for a while, they were, let's all focus on money and not politics. And I think that served them well for a while. That was the impression I got. Yeah. Yeah, but the 1300s weren't a great period for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they sort of started off well, and, and it's a big family at this stage too, obviously. Lots of children, you know, these uh. are good Catholics, so they're having eight kids and those eight kids are having eight kids and those eight <laughs> kids are having eight kids. And they're basically a big clan at this stage. They've been in Florence for over a century um, and, and these clans kind of stuck together. I read in several books that uh, it's important to understand that back then people didn't, this is before the rise of individualism, people didn't think of themselves as an individual family unit. You were your family name. Your job was to Ah. make your family stronger. The success of generations of your family, they had a long-term view of this. It was about building something securing it, leaving it to your children so they could build it and leave it to their children. Um, and so whilst there was like a, there was a big clan, they probably all stuck together and supported each other. Mm-hmm. There might have been some interclanic rivalry going on, but generally speaking, they uh, protected the clan against others. 
But the Florence during this period um, is going to go through some massive changes. You talked in the last episode about how its population sort of exploded during the 1200s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whilst it wasn't as powerful still as a Paris or a Milan, it really started to become a centre of wealth creation, mostly because of banking. Right. The new growth industry of the 13th century <laughs> was banking. It was, to a large extent, an Italian invention, and I want to talk about that a little bit more in this episode because the, the, the story of the Renaissance – is tied very much to the story of the Medici and to the story of banking. Mm-hmm. This is where the bankers really started to take over the world. I mean, yeah. They still run the world today, as far as I'm concerned. The Absolutely. Bankers. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, I think I've, I've mentioned in previous episodes that the English word bank comes from the Italian word banco, which were the tables where the bankers and, and money changers would conduct their trade. Um, mm-hmm. the, the old bridge, the um, Ponte Vecchio, where there's lots of jewellery shops right. now and uh, like a little you know, artist's places and whatever that you cross over, just old bridge, Vecchio meaning old, the old bridge. Um, there used to be lots of money changing tables on there and um, – and literally, I think we've said this on an earlier episode, or at least I remember telling people this story when we were on the Ponte Vecchio. Um, the term to break the bank mm-hmm. um, would, when if if you hadn't paid your debts and you're a money changer or a bank, the, the 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 authorities would come along and literally break your table in half. Ah, so you that's to break the bank is right. they would break your table in half. Aww. That's where that saying, saying comes from. That's how they put you out of business. <laughs> smash your smash your table up. Um, That's cool. So in this time, in the 1300s, Italy is the main economic power in Europe, largely because the Genoese and the Venetians are controlling the import of silk and spices from the Orient. Right. Um, So cloth, wool, grain, luxury goods from the Orient, which were all ending up in the, the, the... palaces of the nobility, the royalty, and the papal courts, these sorts of things around Europe. Um, that's where all the wealth is coming from. Not necessarily in France, but banking is gets established to facilitate trade between all of these international centres. You would, you would have uh, a branch of the biggest banks in all of these different cities around mm-hmm. Europe and even into the Orient. And they would enable this trade to go on. Lines of credit were invented around about this time. So a lot of money being made by the banking industry, but not by the Medici. The Medici didn't invent banking. They weren't one of the biggest at this stage. There were a lot of really big banks. Um, but this is this is a big part of Florence's story is the, the invention of modern banking. Yeah. I mean, just just imagine during the 1200s and the early 1300s, imagine a population explosion as far as people leaving the country and going to the city. Imagine, um, yeah, the the two main in the northwest and the northeast of Italy, you've got the the Genoa and the the Venetians uh, bringing, you know, basically being the middlemen for the stuff coming over um, from the Orient. Imagine the stuff is getting passed on. And besides the basics like wool and, and cloth and stuff like that, you know, like you were saying a second ago, really fine things, expensive of things because the kings and the nobles and various European city-states can afford them. So because we're talking about a lot of money, you have to have um, business centers set up. Like you said, you got to be able to transact with the various denominations. So all of this stuff is coming together. And because Italy is where it's at and because of the various port cities, I mean, just a ton of money is being made by a few people in these various city-states. And and as we're going to see later on, they're going to want to spend it. They're going to want to invest it. They're going to want want to use it to make even more money, which which goes dovetails right into the Renaissance as far as art is concerned. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think we mentioned lines of credit in, I don't know, yeah. fucking Cold War show when we're talking about economics. I don't know where it was when we talked about it. We probably mentioned it, it several times. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's fascinating to me, the history of money. So before – Banks and um, the Knights Templar and mm-hmm. people like that. 
if you were a, a merchant and you're like, all right, I'm off. I'm Marco Polo and I are heading to China <laughs> now. Uh, we're going to go buy some silk. Um, right. We'll be we'll be back in ten years. Um, don't don't, don't make any up. major decisions right. while I'm away. Don't <laughs> say to your wife now. Listen, yeah, um, I've locked up your vajayjay right, with chastity this. Belt. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your chastity belt. Um, I'm taking the key with me. <laughs> I don't want to see it chopped off when I get here. When I get back, right? Um, Going to be gone for ten years. Yeah. Uh, now you would have to take money with you. You'd have yeah. to take. A wagon train full right. of gold, right? Um, which was then going to be you, you're going to get robbed by pirates <laughs> along the way. Uh, it was very inefficient way to yeah. move money around. So banks uh, and the Knights Templar, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, people like that invented this idea of lines of credit, where you could go to your bank branch in Florence and they would give you a, a, a credit letter that said, "All right, like this guy's deposited." 10,000 florins of gold in our branch in Florence. Mm-hmm. When he gets to the branch in Beijing, uh, you know, just give him 10,000, the, the value of 10,000 florins right. of gold in your local currency for him to spend. Wow. He's good, he's good, he's good. for it. Yeah. Which meant, uh, you know, that you couldn't be robbed along the way. You could still be killed, <laughs> uh, roasted alive on a gridiron, <laughs> sure. But the piece of paper was no good. Right. Yeah. Unless they stole the piece of paper and then rocked up to Beijing and said, I'm right. Ray Harris. Right. Here's my credit letter of credit. <laughs> right. They go, um, uh, how are they going to fucking know you're not exactly. Ray Harris? I mean, exactly. They go, you look a little bit tall. <laughs> Aren't you a little bit tall for a stormtrooper, they would say? <clears throat> anyway, um, I mentioned in the last episode, usury, the, the, uh, the idea of charging interest on a loan, which was... It was uh, banned by the Catholic Church. Sure, um, it was uh, against the religion to charge interest. So, uh, as I mentioned, the banks would get around that. They go, "No, it's not interest, Governor. It's it's administrative fees. Yeah, it's it's risks. an extra charge yeah, against risk, exactly, or fluctuations in the exchange rate. Oh, those fluctuations. Rate. Oh, normally yeah. about twenty percent, yeah. but yeah, fluctuations. Yeah." Yeah. The same way that uh, banks and corporations do it today, they they get around the laws by just in you know hiring people to come up with clever ways right. to get around the laws. They were doing it back then, and by the time the church or the government would catch up with them, they'd come up with a new way of getting around it. You know, new, new ways of 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 dodging yeah. um, these sorts of bans. Um, so they, they got away with it, despite the fact that uh, it was against Christianity to charge interest. They, they got away with it and became very powerful. Now, um, Siena was the main banking center by the end of the 13th century, and I think you wanted to say something about Siena? Yeah, just that. As, as much as we've talked about the uh, Medici, not only are they not the biggest banking family in Florence, Florence is not the biggest banking city in Italy, at least not yet. That is Siena, which is about 40 miles south of Florence. But as we've mentioned uh, before, um, in 1298, the Sienese bankers, um, the main family there, they're going to go bankrupt. Um, so they're loaning money out, they're, they're, they're making interest, they're doing fine, but then they start loaning money out to royalty because it's hard to say no to a king or his court when they want to borrow money. How do you do that? Um, but what's going to happen is um, some of these banks are not going to get paid back by the king. Um, you know, and, and what are you going to do if the king doesn't pay you back? Are you going to go to the church? You can't go to the church because the church is against usury. And it doesn't really matter anyway because the king is going to do what he wants. So the point is there are the the, uh, the town of Siena with its massive banking family. They're going to go bankrupt right around 1298-1300. And now Florence is in the perfect place to take advantage of it. And they become the main banking city. And I think we might have mentioned this. Uh, there are three main banking families in Florence at the time, and no, it's not the Medici, not yet. You've got the Bardi, the Peruzzi, and the Accioli. I'm probably saying that wrong, Accioli. But the point is, the Peruzzi, which was the greatest banking house after Siena fell, they had 15 branches all the way from Cyprus to London. So again, this uh, Florence suddenly takes over. They're now the biggest one. 
But imagine this for a second. You've got the population. You've got the growth of business. You've got the growth of banking. And not only is all that benefiting Florence, but Florentine bankers are so conservative and they're so trusting and they're so trustworthy that because they don't manipulate their coins, their florins, um, their city's currency, the florin becomes its own institution. It has 54 grams of gold in it. It's known as a Florence florin. And because they don't dick with that, everybody around trusts and they're like, oh, if you want to use their currency, I will trust you. And so you've got this another advantage, not only for Florin, uh, for Florence, but you've got this uh, uh, advantage for, for bankers as well, because now you've got a standard currency throughout Europe that can be used. And so again, it's just one of those little things that is making business that much easier and that much faster to transact. And everybody who's in banking is benefiting from this. Hmm. Uh, a common currency. Now, that name that you struggled, one of the leading Florentine yes. banking families, was the Acciuol. Oh, see, so yeah, I, uh, I can't say that. I can't say that. Lisa Tucci. Thank you, Lisa. Acciuoli. Okay. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so the invention of the Florin was a major thing. Now, the name of the coin comes from the flower uh, the uh, buttoned lily, mm. which is sort of the, the emblem of Florence. It was on one side of the coin. The head of the coin had the lily on it. Um, and the design of the original Florin had uh, the, the fleur de lis, the lily on one side. On the back of it was St. John the Baptist <laughs> wearing a hair shirt. Right. So it's like, listen, you know, we're not, we're not, we're trying to make money out of it here. We look. We're wearing hair shirts. Yeah. That's where. That's humble. how humble we are. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, they reckon that the uh, a florin um, in a, the equivalent in modern U.S. dollars would be somewhere between a hundred and forty to a thousand. Damn. Modern U.S. dollars, depending on yeah. when and where and, keep, and all of that kind of stuff. And keep that in mind because we're going to be talking about some massive amounts of money in the future. Massive amounts. Yeah. So it's during this period that the foundations of modern capitalism are laid. Um, double entry bookkeeping mm-hmm. uh, starts to become commonplace. Now, as far as we know, it was invented way, way back, probably in the 11th century in the Jewish banking district of Old Cairo. Mm-hmm. In e- in Egypt, they had invented double-entry bookkeeping. There's some records that suggest that. And it's thought that Italians may have discovered or learned about this when they were interacting with these Jewish merchants, um, maybe during the Crusades. Right. Uh, they, they went over to the Middle East. They um, saw what the Jews were doing. Well, they're going, listen, I'm about to kill you, <laughs> but before I do that... I love what you're doing. <laughs> Can you explain to me why you have <laughs> assets and liabilities right. yeah. listed separately? Right. That's fascinating to me. Listen, I we haven't met before. Right. My name's uh, Giovanni. Um, I'm going to run you through with a sword. Uh, try not to get any blood on that book because that I want to study that. I'm not really, uh, you know, a, a brutal murderer mm. by by day. I'm no. really an account. I'm, well. I'm an, I run a little, you know, a little wool business back in. It's 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 nothing, but you know, it's mine. I really, I really struggle with. <laughs> I inherited from my dad. This is this this killing, killing the just uh, to pay the, the bills. infidels yeah. thing. Yeah, that's that's just a thing I do on weekends. It's just that's that's just a hobby. What I really am into is is selling wool. But could you explain that how that works to me? Yeah, right, and then I'll kill yeah. you later. Oh, let me get my foot off your throat. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've always loved the idea that the church sent Italians on the Crusades, but when they went mm-hmm. to the Middle East, they learnt double-entry bookkeeping <laughs> and they discovered the ancient classics, <laughs> the ancient Greco-Roman right? authors that the Muslims had protected oh. during the Dark Ages. They came back to Italy with those, used them to set up the Renaissance, <laughs> which ended up destroying the church's power. <laughs> Bazinga. Yeah. 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 I love it. Oh, my God. Um <laughs> So anyway, by the end of the 15th century, the bankers and the the merchants in 
across Italy, really, Florence, Genoa, Venice, were using double-entry bookkeeping. Wow. Which just made them more efficient. Yeah. You know, they, they were able to run more successful businesses. They were able to track their costs and their, their, their profits better. Um, and the first uh, guy to use it, the first records of it in Italy um, come from a guy called Amatino Manucci. <laughs> the end of the 13th century, he was a merchant in Florence. He worked for the Farolfi firm. And their ledger from 1299 has evidence of full double-entry bookkeeping. Wow. Um, now, this firm, Giovannino Farolfi and company, uh, were Florentine merchants. They had headquarters in Nimes in France. They acted as moneylenders to the Archbishop of Arles, mm. who was their most important customer. Right. Um, so other ideas that were developed during this time included credit lines, fiduciary money, and payment by ledger transfers and bills of exchange. Mm -hmm. So they're really making huge leaps forward in how the banking system works. And as we've explained, that's going to have a big impact on the Florentine economy over the next 100 years. Absolutely, yeah. Now... Now, I, I just find this really hilarious. So, so Florence is really taking off. The bankers are making a ton of money. They've got political control of the city. But they end up making the same mistake as the Sienese. They end up loaning money to King Robert of Naples and Edward III of England. But again, how do you say no to a king when he's, quote, unquote, asking for a loan? Um, and uh, not to jump too far ahead, so they're they're putting out money, thinking, oh, this is great because maybe we'll have some influence in these various courts or whatever. Uh, but things start to turn bad for Europe in general at this point. So in 1340, uh, Europe has an economic uh, depression. The kings choose or can't pay back their loans. And um, so the the three main banking families of Florence are suffering or, in fact, go bankrupt like the Sienese uh, did earlier. So, again, this is just another opportunity for the, uh, for the Medici, even though they're still a mid-level bank, to actually take advantage of this and start to move up because the larger banks before them are being wiped out for for reasons beyond their control. Yeah, I think the idea of loaning money to kings or popes in this period is yeah. stupid. There's a lot of oh, sorry. well, no, there's a lot of upside. I mean, you get to hobnob with mm -hmm. royalty and Play potentially golf. right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you get you know you get to get a seat at the table at Mar-a-Lago. Right. Um, <laughs> And There's a lot of money to yeah. be made. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bit like you know these uh, Michael Cohens of the world. You know, they're like. Listen, there's a lot of money to be made when you get involved with royalty, but there's <laughs> risks as well. So you better record um, them. Yeah. Yes. Better always be yeah, just speaking <laughs> to that pot plant if you don't mind. Um. So yeah, you you the potential to to really. I mean, you're dealing with the royalty. I mean, you might be able to marry off one of your daughters Ooh, yeah. to a prince. Nice. You know, you might get granted lots of land. You get to get, get up into the next echelon. Like, yeah. It's one thing to be a, a, a successful banker. Right. But if you can get up into the aristocracy. Oh, now we're talking. By loaning money to a king or to a pope. Right. That's really where your family gets up to the next level. And this, is, of course, is what the Medici eventually did very successfully, and they right. become the aristocracy of Europe. But there's lots of risks, as, as you've said. If a king suddenly decides, you know what, I'm not paying it back, sorry, yeah. fuck off, <laughs> what do you do? I yeah. mean, you, you can try and get another king or a pope or somebody to wage war for you mm. on that king, yeah. but... It's you know, your chances Risky. of making that happen are, you know, pretty slim. Yeah. So, yeah, all of these banks end up, uh, particularly during the economic depression of 1340, they basically get crushed. <sighs> then Edward III of England gets involved in what ended up being the Hundred Years' War against France. Yeah. Uh, it's said that at one point he owned the Peruzzi family of Florence, the value of a realm. <laughs> That's how much money he'd borrowed from them. So these three leading banking families in Florence all went bankrupt Damn. in quick succession. 
Um, Now, even before this happens, though, the early 14th century was pretty volatile in Florence, political power changing hands all the time. I've mentioned before, we've talked about the two main sort of political factions in Florence, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Mm -hmm. The Ghibellines uh, drew their support from the noble families the 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 grandi um, right. and the way to remember this uh, is a little bit of a heuristic uh, that might help is gibble sounds like noble ah. so the ghibellines were the noble party nice. the guelphs were supported by the bourgeoisie the wealthy merchants and the popular minuto the small people the right. little people the yeah. umpalumpas as i mentioned earlier <laughs> right. um so this is going on, a lot of, lot of political strife in Florence. Then there's the economic depression and the start of the Hundred Years' War. Then there's the Black Death that we talked about in yeah. our um, Bukake episodes. Right. Um, Boccaccio writes about it in the Decameron. Humanism had already obviously started to blossom in Florence at this stage. Giotto, Petrarch, Boccaccio... But then the Black Death killed off a lot of people, as we've talked about in earlier episodes. Yeah. Many people thought of it as, as God's retribution, um, which meant that a lot of people, including guys like Petrarch and Boccaccio, became a lot more religious after this. But, um, uh, you know, there's the, the, there's banking families are wiped out. A lot of the population, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, are wiped out. And, you know, the tragedy can also mean opportunity. And this Absolutely. is when the, the Medici family really start to make a play for more power. And at this stage, by the mid-1300s, their clan is probably 20 or 30 nuclear families in Florence. And they seem to have taken advantage of the vacuum left by the bankruptcy of these leading Florentine banking families and this is where they go into banking and setting up several small banks amongst mm-hmm. the Medici family. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. So like you were saying, so between the Black Death, between the economic downturn, between those three banks losing it, uh, between the political frictions, they're, they're like, okay, yeah, things are kind of rough right now. But like you said, this is an opportunity. You have cousins or brothers come together, pull their capital. Maybe they open up a, a bank they, or they open up a business where there's a foreign currency exchange. Uh, maybe they loan money to, they make seasonal loans to wool traders and weavers and stuff like that. But the point is, they're starting to do more than just be conservative. They're starting to invest. They're starting to go out, be a little more proactive, and they're going to try to see what they can do with it because they have been up until this point pretty conservative, taking it nice and slow. And now, because you've got this huge vacuum with these three major family banking families gone, it's time to try something. And some of them, you know, some of them work better than others. And like you were saying earlier, they might be a clan and they might have rivalries in between them, but they, they certainly come together when there's an outside challenge. But they start making uh, start making money and these businesses, or at least most of the businesses they come up with, do survive the Black Death and this become, the ones that survive becomes the basis of the Medici power base. And I think it's fascinating to realize that at this point, the Medici have been in Florence for like 150 years mm-hmm. as money changes. They've, you know, they've been on the Signoria. They've had several members who are the, the Gonfalonieri, but right. they, 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 they haven't really made a major play for right. wealth and power. Who does that yeah, remind you been, of? Uh, Ho- the the Trump Ho- Trump family? Ho- I know. No, I was thinking about Ho Chi Minh. I mean, you know, he, he took it easy for decades, planning, 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 and like you said, they've been gathering wealth, kind of behind the scenes, very you know, almost like you wouldn't even know what's going on. I'm sure they have built up some serious um, some serious coinage, but the point is they haven't risked it yet, and now they are risking it. They're creating businesses, and again, they were just waiting for their time. 150 years and several generations is a long time to wait to build up before you start to strike out. Yeah. So uh, Giovanni de Medici, who's a direct descendant of uh, Chiarissimo, the guy who's the first documented Medici mm. in um, legal documents in Florence, um, he is the first Medici to really strike out. He becomes a military leader. And in yeah. 1343, 
he encouraged Florence to go to war against a smaller city-state, Lucha, about 40 miles uh, to the west of Florence. Yeah. He tried to lay siege to Lucha. Unfortunately for Giovanni, <laughs> he failed. Yeah. And the whole thing was a big fiasco. <sighs> he returned to Florence and said, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> And, and they said, you're right. they had him. Yeah. Yeah. And you've lost and had him executed. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So he should have stuck to, to, to making money. But I guess he saw himself as a war leader or whatever. He tries, he fails. And because of that, the Medi- the rest of the Medici, who are still alive and still have their heads attached to their bodies, they're like, ooh, I think we're going to lay low for a while and stick to civil affairs, forget the military stuff. We'll, we'll keep, um, you know, we'll keep going after money. But, but what they found out was even trying to grab power in different ways can still be dangerous. So hopefully they learned something from Giovanni and they're going to be a lot more conservative and, and keep building their money and their power base. Yeah. So about 35 years later, Giovanni's cousin, Salvestro de Medici, becomes gonfalonieri. And unfortunately for him, during his two month period, right. uh, a riot broke out amongst some of the, the Oompa Loompas. Um, they were the, the wool workers, right. um, they were known as the Chompy. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, the sound that their wooden clogs made on the stone streets was like chomp, 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 and they were known as the chompy, as they would stamp around uh, selling wool, moving wool around from part A to part B. Right. They, they led a revolt because they wanted some political power. They probably wanted a pay rise. They wanted some, you know, Dignity. they wanted the right to form their own guild. Yeah, yeah they wanted some, some say. In the ruling Florence, as we said earlier, uh, these little people made up three quarters of the population of Florence, but they didn't get any say in the political machinations. So from time to time, there would be a revolution. And one of those happened during the period where Salvestro de' Medici was running the Signoria. Now, the revolt was uh, led by a guy called uh, Michele di Lando Calrissian, (laughs) who... um, had a mob of wool workers and artisans that he was uh, out at the front of. Yeah. And it and it became violent, this uh, revolt. Now, apparently, despite the fact that he was the gonfalonieri, Salvestro sympathised with the little people. Hmm. This is a common theme you see with the Medici over the years. Yeah. Uh, despite their wealth and power, they... They always supposedly have uh, um, uh, sympathies with, with the underclasses, the working classes. Right. Um, so the story goes that maybe he saw this as an opportunity to advance the Medicis, as I've ah. mentioned earlier. When there are these revolts, the Medici is not one of the most powerful families in Florence, and the, these petite bourgeoisie see an opportunity It reminds me, like, if you think back to the French Revolution or the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. classic examples. So in both cases, these revolutions are led by sort of the upper middle class. Right. Um, They they got some money. They're not the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. They're not the guys at the top of the food chain. Uh, But they want to be. They see... Uh. They see the, the they see the lifestyles of the the rich and famous. They want to be that. They're the, so what they do is they encourage the people right. to revolt because they can't do it by themselves. Yeah. They're small numbers, so they they rile up the people, yeah. encourage them Rattle to revolt. Rises. Yeah, yeah. They know that thousands of them are going to die. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is we kick out the aristocracy, right. the elite, the one percenters. Then we can take. Over right, and, and increase our own wealth. This is most revolutions. Um, this is the form that they take. I mean, even um, Ho Chi Minh or, or the revolutions that I'm somewhat have a somewhat uh, soft uh, spot for mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh um, and, and Fidel Castro. These guys were middle class. They came from middle class. Right. I mean, Ho was poor. He was an educated, know, for, yeah. but yeah, he, his father was sort of. 
you know, worked for the bureaucracy and he had a good education, that kind of stuff. Fidel was a lawyer. His father was a, you know, a, a relatively sort of major landowner, wasn't super rich, but mm-hmm. compared to most of the people in Cuba, uh, he, Fidel came from a good upper middle class background. Uh, che Guevara was was a doctor, came from an upper middle class background in Argentina. Again, mm. his family wasn't rich, but right. they were sort of uh, they had a little bit of money, had had at various stages anyway. Um, so that's the way revolutions are usually run. It's the people with an education um, who can organise, uh, who tend to run these things, who, who can see the bigger picture. Um, so, uh, you know, perhaps Silvestro saw an opportunity here for the Medici to finally get rid of some of the toffs oh. in Florence and, and get more power. So the story is that he uh, secretly, uh, with his powers gonfalonieri at the time, threw open the prisons oh. to sort of turn up the temperature right. of, this, uh, of this protest, it turn works. it into a riot. Yeah. He and the other eight members of the Signoria were forced to barricade themselves into the Palazzo della Signoria while the mob went on a rampage, <laughs> looting the palazzos across Florence, basically like the Yellow Jackets at the moment in Paris. Right. They were fucking turning over cars, <laughs> setting fire to the Arc de Triomphe, uh, basically just going crazy. Do you- do you think it got out of his – maybe he had a plan. Maybe I'll, I'll just turn it up a little bit. People will get scared and maybe they'll turn to me. It, it sounds to me like he just it, – it got away from him. I think he thought – no, yeah, maybe he thought, listen, well, I'll let the people run right in the streets. Then I will step forward and right. be the make good guy and try right. and make peace. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to come out of it as a hero and people will love me, and I'll I'll be the new Julius Caesar or, or Augustus Caesar. I'm the guy who brought peace right. to the chaos of Rome. Yeah. Now, Machiavelli, later on, when he's writing his history of Florence, wrote, uh, this is a basic maxim, let no one stir up things in a city believing that he can stop them as he <laughs> pleases or that he is in charge of what happens next. <laughs> Um, we're talking about this. So, yeah, he's saying, yeah, you, you throw open the gates of hell, don't expect to be able to, <laughs> to ride put the cat thing. back in the bag, exactly. you know? Yeah, <laughs> ride, ride the tempest. Now, yeah. Sal- Salvestro's house was spared, ah. uh, which wasn't a good sign. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they burnt down every other palazzo <laughs> in the street but left his untouched, and people were like, hmm. Ah. hmm. It's like, no, no, like we've just, you know, just lucky, really. Yeah, I threw camouflage Lucky over. that ours was Yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so eventually he gets deposed and uh, the head of the mob, Lando Calrissian, uh, gets installed in his place. Right. But. Be- but. Yeah, because the uh, Ciampi, um, still, they still have, like you said, three-fourths of the citizens on their side. Um, they are going to stay in control for two years, which is completely outrageous. Um, but we don't, we don't have to go into the details unless you want to about what happened uh during their rule, but they, they set up their own gills, you know, because that's what they were looking for. They wanted to be able to set up their own gills. They wanted to be able to vote and maybe eventually take part in running the city. Well, hell, now they've got the running of the cities, but they set up their own gills. Now, what happens is about two years into this, um, it gets out. The people find out that Lando Calrissian has been having secret talks with Salvestro. The people find out. They assume that he is there in cahoots or whatever, but they get pissed off and they take to the streets again. Now, I've heard two different versions of how this ends, Cam. I, I certainly want to know what you think. But one, I heard that uh, Lando Calrissian and Silvestro used their authority to call out the militia. I also heard that the merchants closed down their shops, and so the Chiampi workers weren't getting paid. And so that also helped bring the Chiampi rule to an end. Uh, ha- have you heard of either one of those, or, or what do you have? Yeah, I got both of that. Okay. But I, I want to go back to why yeah. Lando Calrissian would have reached out to Silvestro. Please. The suggestion is that he he kind of didn't know how to run yeah, the city. Yeah, he's a worker. Uh, well, yes. Uh, and and maybe there were machinations going on behind the scenes. I suge- You mm-hmm. know, I think that um, the guilds, the, 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 the traditional 21 guilds, weren't happy about yeah. the, the hoi pol- the, not the hoi poloi, the, the oompa loompas um, forming their own guilds. So maybe right. they were deliberately trying to destroy 
the um, economy of the city. Yeah. Um, you know, that, let me let me sidetrack here for a moment. Um, you know, my book, The Psychopath Economy, that I gave a plug to earlier. The last chapter on it is about um, what happens when the elite start to lose control. Mm-hmm. You can see examples of this throughout history. Whenever the traditional mechanisms of control start to break down, stop working, right. the elite don't just go, oh, well, it was nice while it lasted. <laughs> They're going to use Sorry. their wealth and their influence and their power to try and wrest back control from the people. Now, right. one in the 20th century, um, the way that we saw this happen in various times and various places was through the rise of fascism. <clears throat> fascism is basically what happens when the capitalists start to lose control of the people. They uh, turn to fascism. That's what they did in Italy and Germany and Japan. Um, and there are different – you can see different aspects of that happening, uh, I think, today in the United States. Um, mm. the, the rise of autocratic right. control of the people. You still there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who are you whispering to? No, I, w- I was just saying there, were, there also seems to be a rise of nationalism, but I wasn't trying to uh, throw you off course, so I'll edit all that out. Well, no, that's fine because, you know, nationalism is um, one of the indicators of fascism. Ah. And pointing the finger at minorities as being the cause of all the trouble. Oh, it's all the Jews. Oh, it's all the Muslims. Oh, it's all the... It's the atheists, it's the, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's the Mexicans that are right. coming over the border that are the cause of all of our problems. You, you start to focus people's inherent anger onto minorities right. and, and, and a lot of other things. That I've got sort of lists of all of the major warning signs of fascism in the book. But anyway, the point is that when the elite lose control, there, there, there are things that they can do to try and respect control. One of those things is... Collapsing the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about the global financial crisis of 2008 as an example. If you collapse the economy and crash the economy, the wealthy normally are going to come out of it better off. Right. They can survive an economic collapse better than the workers, the, the hand-to-mouth workers. Hand-to-mouth workers, when the economy collapses, they lose everything. They lose their jobs, they lose their income, which means they can't pay their rent or their mortgage, which means they lose their house, they lose their health insurance, they lose all of their life savings that go up in smoke. Um, They're completely destroyed. Now, when you're completely destroyed, uh, it's very hard for you to fight for political power. Mm -hmm. You go back to struggling to feed your family, keep a roof over your head, put food on the table, the basics is where you go and spend your energy. And so I think what happened in this period is that that's what the elite did in Florence as they started to fuck with the economy. Silvestro was out of his depth. I mean, uh, Lando Calrissian was out of his depth. He turned to Silvestro to say, hey, yeah, uh, help, help me out here. We, I, I need to calm down my own people. <laughs> Um, because, uh, you know, the, the guilds have all gone on strike. So anyway, as you said, the, one of the stories is they called out the militia, um, the mob backed down, and the revolt was over. They, uh, uh, and things started to go back to normal. All of the new guilds formed by the Chompy were dissolved, mm-hmm. and the, the, the elite took back control again. Now, Silvestro and Lando Calrissian... Instead of being executed, <laughs> right. and this is why I think there was uh, something going on behind the scenes here, they were exiled instead ah. for their role in allowing all this happen. I think they did a deal with the elite to put them back into power and as a quasi-reward for that, instead of being strung up by their neck and thrown off the 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 Palazzo della Signoria, mm-hmm. they were exiled instead. But again... Another attempt by the Medici to hold political power ends in ruination. Right. And, and, and like you can imagine that all the people that were in power before this, you know, they probably looked at each other and went, what the hell just happened? And so, like you said, they have to clean this up and they're going to try to clamp down even harder next time to make sure this does not happen again because they don't like losing power. So what can they do to make sure it doesn't happen again? They're, they're going to get pretty tough. 
pretty tough and pretty conservative. Yes. They're going to stay out of politics for as long as possible. Right. Uh, get back to basics, which is Making building money. their wealth. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's enough for this episode. Uh, when we come back next time, again, we'll be just talking about the 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 Medici and uh, their rise to power, how they recover from the failed revolt of the Chompy. Ooh, da, 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 da.